0: Now, many of you know that tonight's lecture is named in honor and in memory of Stuart G. Christian, Jr., affectionately known to all who knew him as Punky. Punky Christian's service to his country as a decorated combat veteran of World War II and to his community as a business executive and civic leader is well known. Twice wounded in Normandy, Punky returned home and helped build post-war Virginia. His service to the Virginia Historical Society spanned some of the most critical years of our history. He co-chaired our first capital campaign, the 5th Century Campaign, which redefined the VHS as the Center for Virginia History and served as the catalyst for two decades of growth and achievement. As a trustee, board president, and honorary vice chairman, Punky gave leadership, energy, generosity, and his own special cantankerous brand of persistence. All of these qualities left an indelible mark on the place we all gather tonight. And tonight we celebrate Punky with this lecture, named in his honor, and every year I'm delighted that his wonderful wife Peggy is with us as well. He's also uh, with Peggy are two of Punky and Peggy's children, Susan and Stuart, along with two of their grandchildren, Ashby and Emma. And I want to thank, on behalf of the VHS, I want to thank the Christian family for sharing Punky with his extended family, many of us in this room. And though he left us in 2009, after a long life full of accomplishment, we will always remember him with the greatest affection of what he meant to so many Virginians. So Christian family, thank you so, so much. And we've chosen World War II-era topics for the Christian Lecture in honor of Punky's service in that conflict, and tonight, as I've done the last couple of years, I want to take a moment and ask that uh, any World War II-era veteran in the audience, please stand up and be recognized by the rest of us for the service that you gave to our nation. It's wonderful to do that, and let me just, if I may, request that as you leave this lecture and you go about your lives, if you know a veteran of our century's most, the 20th century's most important conflict, please take the time to thank him or her, and don't wait to do it, because they won't be with us forever, and they deserve our thanks. Now, on to tonight's lecture. In 2002 our speaker published the first volume of an intended trilogy on the Allied liberation of Europe in World War II. That book, An Army at Dawn, told the story of the North African campaign, and it won the Pulitzer Prize. He followed that five years later with The Day of Battle, the harrowing count of the campaigns in Sicily and Italy. Tonight, he is here to recount the final, dramatic story of the U.S. Army in Western Europe, which has just been published as The Guns at Last Light. Our speaker's book begins with the brutal fighting on D-Day and continues through the liberation of Paris, the disaster in Holland that was Operation Market Garden, the horrific Battle of the Bulge, and the final thrust into Germany itself. In his final volume on the U.S. Army's long fight against Hitler's Reich, Rick Atkinson describes the epic struggle from the perspective of men at every level, from presidents and generals to war-weary lieutenants and teenage riflemen. Those of us who have read Volumes 1 and 2 should not be surprised that this new installment has received rave reviews. The Washington Post had this to say, quote, With great sensitivity, Atkinson conveys the horrible reality of what soldiers had to become in order to defeat Hitler's Germany. In the Wall Street Journal, Max Hastings himself, a widely published expert on the war, described Atkinson's book as wholly gripping and filled with surprising detail on every page. In summarizing his review, Hastings states, I have seldom more greatly admired a military narrative than that which Rick Atkinson has sustained over three volumes and the Long March from November 1942 to May 1945. Born in Munich... Rick Atkinson is the son of a U.S. Army officer and grew up on military posts. He holds a Master's of Art degree in English Literature from the University of Chicago. He served as a reporter, foreign correspondent, and senior editor for 25 years at the Washington Post. His most recent assignments were covering the 101st Airborne during the invasion of Iraq and writing about roadside bombs in Iraq and Afghanistan. Among other assignments, he served as the post's Berlin bureau chief, covering not only Germany and NATO, but also spending considerable time in Somalia and Bosnia. In addition to this liberation trilogy, Rick Atkinson is the best-selling author of *The Long Gray Line*, a narrative saga about the West Point class of 1966, *Crusade*, a history of the Persian Gulf War, and *In the Company of Soldiers*, on account of his time with General David Petraeus and the 101st Airborne Division during the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Atkinson's many, and I mean many, awards include the 2003 Pulitzer Prize for History, the 1982 Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting, and the 1999 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service, awarded to the Post for a series of investigative articles directed and edited by Atkinson on shootings by the District of Columbia Police Department. Atkinson has served as General Omar N. Bradley, Chair of Strategic Leadership at the U.S. Army War College, where he remains an adjunct faculty member. With that impressive introduction, I hope you will join me in welcoming from a very warm Virginia perspective, Rick Atkinson, who will speak to us on the guns at Last Light.
1: Thank you, Paul. Thank you all for coming tonight. I'm grateful to be here again, uh, and thank you to the Christian family for being here and sponsoring this lecture. I apologize. I've been yapping so much the last two weeks. You can hear that it's taken a toll on my voice, but we'll try and soldier on. Um, If there's a better historical society in any state, I haven't found it yet than the one in Virginia, and I congratulate you on sustaining what is really Uh, an exemplary organization. I consider myself a quasi-Virginian. As Paul mentioned, I'm an army brat, uh, so I have no home, but I did go to high school in Fairfax County. Uh, I was back in the day when um, you learned how to drive by going on the Beltway at night because there was no traffic. This is true. (laughs) So Jack London said that a writer ought not wait for inspiration, but instead should light out after it with a club. And 15 years ago, I took my club, and what I found, what inspired me, was the Second World War. The war lasted 2,174 days, and by the end, it was the greatest catastrophe in human history, 60 million dead. That's 27,600 dead a day, or about 1,150 an hour. If you were a German boy, born between 1915 and 1924, the odds were one in three that by 1945, you would be dead. Of the Soviet population of 190 million, 14% perished during the war. 60 million dead over six years means a death every three seconds. One, two, three. One, two, three. That's World War II. The writer Kingsley Amos once declared that he only wanted to read books that begin, a shot rang out. Well, my approach has been to recount the portion of the war that involves the Americans and the British and the other Western allies in the liberation of Europe. And in that saga, many, many shots ring out. It's really a triptych. It's three independent panels that can be studied and appreciated independently, but ultimately form a coherent whole. And the first panel, of this triptych, or volume in my case, uh, begins where the liberation of Europe begins, in North Africa, with the invasion by British and American troops in November 1942 of Algeria and Morocco and the subsequent campaign through the Atlas Mountains across the rim of North Africa to final victory over the Germans and Italians in Tunisia in May of 1943. And then we move in the second triptych, or second volume, North across the Mediterranean to Sicily, which we invaded with the British in July 1943, and then southern Italy, which we invaded in September 1943. And we go to places like Salerno, the Volturno River, the Rapido River, Cassino, Anzio, and finally the liberation of Rome on June 4, 1944. This final volume opens on May 15, 1944 at St. Paul's School on Hammersmith Road in London. And it's at St. Paul's School that Eisenhower, Omar Bradley, George Patton, Churchill, King George VI, and several dozen of the most senior commanders who are going to command the invasion of Normandy gather for a final review of the plan. They gather in a room called the model room. It's an auditorium. It's bitter cold, even though it's the middle of May and the generals are sitting with their overcoats wrapped around them. And in the floor of this auditorium, in the cockpit, there is a very large plaster of Paris map, six inches to the mile. And there's a British brigadier in no-skid socks with a pointer, and he shuffles across the map as they discuss what's about to unfold on what will be in three weeks the most famous battlefield on Earth. And he points to places like the beaches, Utah, Omaha, Gold, Juno, Sword, and towns like saint Lo, Cherbourg, Cannes, and over on the edge Paris. And then for the next <clears throat> 12 chapters, The action on spools at these places and others, at places like Mortain, Falaise, Paris, the Hurtgen Forest, the Battle of the Bulge, and on across the the Rhine, the encirclement of the Ruhr, and the final drive across Germany to victory on May 8, 1945, VE Day. And as in the first two volumes, we periodically move from a foxhole tactical view of what's happening to a higher perspective, where you can see operationally and strategically what's at stake, and periodically we look on the other side of the hill and see what the Germans are doing. I also recount at some length the invasion of southern France in mid-August 1944, something that many Americans know very little about and the subsequent drive by a Franco-American army group up the Rhone River Valley. They turn right at Lyon. They go through the Vosges Mountains early in the winter of 1944, and they capture Strasbourg so that they are on the Rhine four months before any of the other Western allies reach the river. It's a controversial campaign. And it's full of fantastic characters. For example, the American generals Jacob Devers and Alexander Patch, and the commander of the first French army, a general named Jean Delat de Tassany, who is beyond the power of any novelist to invent. (laughs) Delat, one of his admirers, called him an animal of action And he would appear sometimes in the middle of the night in bivouacs where his soldiers were sleeping and he would roar out waking them up, what have you done for France? He's that kind of guy. (laughs) Well, as you may suspect, the uh, liberation of Europe is not an undiscovered subject. Amazon.com lists something on the order of 60,000 hardcover World War II titles. So how do you tell that story so that you and you and you feel that you've heard it anew for the first time? Part of it is voice, of course, and narrative coherence, but part of it is archival spade work. And when it comes to World War II, an archive rat like me can live large. The U.S. Army records alone for the Second World War weigh an estimated 17,000 tons. It's a lot of paper. It's it's even more paper than you find the Virginia Historical Society. (laughs) Like all great events in American history, World War II is bottomless. There's more to discover. There will always be more to discover. So, for example, I was at the National Archives in College Park, Maryland, not very far from where I live in Washington, and I came across a document that showed that in thinking about how to invade Normandy, there was a recognition that if you come by sea, it's very hazardous. There are lots of Germans watching the beaches. And if you come by air, by glider, by parachute, that also is very hazardous. There are lots of Germans watching the landing zones and the drop zones. So what are your alternatives? Well, one of the things that was proposed was digging a tunnel under the English Channel. (laughs) And in fact, The study reported, yes, sir, we can do this. They were engineers. They were always saying, yes, sir, we can do this. We need 15,000 miners. It'll take a year to excavate 50,000 tons of spoil. But what they couldn't figure out, what they could never finesse, was what happens when that first miner pokes his head out of the (laughs) (laughs) tunnel. And the entire German 7th Army is waiting for him. There was a whole set of issues dealing with the invasion of Normandy, and they had their own acronym, PINWI, Problems of the Invasion of Northwest Europe. There was, for example, anxiety that the Germans would fly planes over England and drop rats infected with bubonic plague, and there were bounties offered on rat carcasses to test for plague. There were anxieties that the Germans would fly over and drop something called radioactive agents. And so there were Geiger counters hidden around England to test for possible radioactivity. The Allies also stockpiled 160,000 tons of chemical munitions in England and the Mediterranean. And I found at the National Archives Uh, two plans that Eisenhower had signed off on for eventual chemical warfare in Normandy if it came to that. The first plan posited that we cared about French civilian casualties. The second plan, not so much. And had there been chemical warfare in France, as there certainly was in World War I, it would have been devastating, and there would have been tens of thousands of French civilian casualties. U.S. Army draftee standards, and I was pleased to see how many World War II veterans there are here today, so perhaps some of you know that draftee standards evolved over the course of the war so that the Army could begin accepting what were called physically imperfect men. (laughs) So at the beginning of our involvement in World War II, really in 1942, To be drafted, you had to have at least 12 of your natural 32 teeth. By 1944, how many teeth did you need to be drafted? Zero. (laughs) And that's because the Army and the Navy together drafted one-third of all the dentists in the United States, and collectively, they extracted 15 million teeth, they filled 68 million more, they made a couple million sets of dentures, all to enable those new recruits to be able to masticate the Army ration. (laughs) I know that sounds like an obscene act, but that was the standard. (laughs) By 1944, a man could be drafted if he had 2,400 vision, as long as it was correctable to 2040 in one eye. The old bromide had come true that the Army no longer examined eyes, it just counted them. (laughs) And, in fact, you could be drafted if you had only one eye, if you were completely deaf in one ear, if you were missing both external ears. You could be drafted if you were missing a thumb. You could be drafted if you were missing three fingers on one hand, including your trigger finger. Venereal disease had kept many men out of uniform early in the war, But that restriction also was lifted, and the Army soon was drafting 12,000 VD patients a month, most of them syphilitic. How could they do that? Penicillin. That extraordinary discovery by British scientists of the antibiotic agent in the 1920s was followed by a massive effort by the Americans and the British to take a substance that had been made by the Gram and to make it by the kilogram, and eventually by the ton. Well, why these extreme measures to fill the ranks? Because of the crying need for soldiers, especially infantrymen, and especially riflemen. Even in a country of 130 million, we were running out. The Brits did run out. The war remained brutal and voracious to the end. In April 1945, the last full month of the war in Europe, more than 10,000 American soldiers were killed in Germany. That's almost as many as were killed in June 1944, the month of invasion. So desperate was the American army for infantrymen that the high command took an action that had been unthinkable just a few months earlier. They allowed black soldiers to volunteer for duty as infantrymen, mostly as riflemen, in white units. Fifty-three platoons of colored infantry were integrated into 11 otherwise white divisions. Many of those African-American soldiers surrendered sergeant stripes that they had earned as drivers, cooks, and laborers for the privilege of fighting as privates in infantry units. There are many other discoveries and surprises. I, I found a detailed account, for example, written by the Atlanta Funeral Home Director, who was summoned to take care of President Franklin Roosevelt's body after the President died at Warm Springs, Georgia, on April 12, 1945. It's as moving and detailed as it is clinical. After spending several hours injecting six bottles of embalming fluid into the president's veins and arteries, the mortician describes how he otherwise prepared the president for eternity. And the last thing he did was he summoned Arthur Prettyman, who was Roosevelt's valet, and he gave him a comb and he asked him to comb the president's hair just so. I tell the story of one of the most secret weapons of the war, the so-called posit fuse, or VT fuse. These were code names. If you want an artillery shell to go off close to your target, whether it's an anti-aircraft shell shooting at an enemy plane or a field artillery shell, it helps if that shell knows where the target is. Before the invention of the posit fuse, There had been various ways to make that shell detonate, but they were mostly by guess and by golly. American engineers invented a tiny radar sensor, small enough to put into the nose of a shell about the size of an ice cream cone. And, for example, if you were shooting at an enemy plane, that little radar device would emit signals... And when a plane was detected, it would send the signal back. It would bounce off the plane. And a receiver in the shell, in the posit fuse, would trigger a device that then exploded the shell within the killing lethal radius of the burst of the shell. The United States was eventually making two million posit shells a month at 20 bucks a piece. They were used by the field artillery for the first time, it had been so secret that they were only fired before 1944 over the ocean, so a dud would fall into the sea and not be recoverable by the enemy and reverse engineered. But they were first used by the field artillery over, over land during the Battle of the Bulge in December 1944. The Germans called it pure manslaughter. John Updike once said that World War II was the 20th century's central myth. He called it a tale of Troy whose angles are infinite and whose central figures never cease to amaze us with their size, their theatricality, their sweep. Well, theatrical they are. I believe the narrative historian's true calling is to bring back the dead. And I try to do just that, not just with the outsized figures you're familiar with, but with others who are less familiar, like Generals Ted Roosevelt Jr., for example, and Lucian Truscott Jr. Many of these figures have been with us from the beginning of the war in North Africa. Even amid the clash of army groups, my eye is always drawn to the small, particular tragedy that illuminates the larger catastrophe. For example, the death of the son, the only child, of General Alexander Patch, who commanded the U.S. Seventh Army in southern France. His son, Mac, had been wounded at Normandy. And as he was recuperating, he'd been badly wounded. His mother, Julia, General Patch's wife, wrote to her husband and asked him to be sure that he did not allow Mac to come back into combat too quickly. After he recuperated, Mack returned to duty in his father's army, in the 7th Army in southern France, and he was killed almost immediately. I tell that story using the general's letters to his wife, to Julia, which are in the archive at West Point, and it's unspeakably heartbreaking. General Patch told Julia, I cannot and must not allow myself to dwell upon our irreparable loss. As I write, the tears are falling from my eyes. Providence decrees, and we must obey. Providence decrees, and we must obey. How many thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of of thousands of families eventually knew that sentiment? I tell the story of the suicide of Rear Admiral Don P. Moon, who had commanded the American naval forces off Utah Beach on D-Day and shortly before the invasion of southern France where he was again to play a large role, he blew his brains out in the cabin of his flagship in Naples Harbor. The stress had unhinged him and the suicide note that he left for his wife and his four children is haunting. Part of it read, what am I doing to you, my wife and dear children? I'm sick. So sick. We've last seen Lieutenant Colonel John K. Waters, a fine armor officer who happens to be George Patton's son-in-law, being hustled off to a German prison camp after he is captured on the first day of the debacle known as the Battle of Kasserine Pass in February 1943 in Tunisia. In the guns at last light, we are reunited with Colonel Waters, in March 1945 as a consequence of Patton's harebrained scheme to launch a raid on the prison camp at Hummelburg in northern Bavaria, during which Waters was shot and severely wounded. I was given Colonel Waters' diary and his camp logs by his son. He kept a meticulous chart, for example, of prison rations showing daily allotments that included, for example, 35.7 grams of meat per man per day. That's a little more than an ounce. As well as 318 grams of barley bread, 200 grams of cabbage, and 143 grams of cow turnips. Try living on that. Waters very carefully peeled the labels off Red Cross food relief cans. And he pasted them into his log as if extracting a few final calories from the memories, labels of Tapo peanut butter, and Kroger's fruitcake. I mentioned that the United States during World War II had a population of about 130 million. We managed to put 16 million, 112,566 into uniform during the war. And of those, about 1.3 million are still alive, my father among them. They're leaving us at a rate of 300,000 a year, or about 800 a day. Late next year, the number of American survivors who are World War II veterans will drop below 1 million. And 10 years later in 2024, that number will slip below 100,000. In 2036, which is the last year for which US government demographers have made projections, the number of surviving veterans from the most catastrophic war in human history in the United States will be less than 400. That's under half the size of an infantry battalion. This country suffered less than any of the other major belligerents during the war. We emerged from the war with our industrial base not only intact, but thriving. We emerged from the war with two-thirds of the world's gold supply, with plentiful energy, with optimism, and a great sense of the future. But about 400,000 Americans died during World War II, of which 291,000 were killed in action. And of those battle deaths, About half occurred in Europe in the last 11 months of the war. In 1947, the next of kin of all Americans who had been buried overseas, and that includes nearly everyone who had died in the Pacific, Europe, or the Mediterranean and whose bodies were recovered, the next of kin were given Quartermaster Form Number 345. And they were given a one time opportunity to choose in 1947 whether to repatriate their sons, and these are mostly sons, or to have them buried overseas in one of about two dozen American Battle Monuments Commission cemeteries. 60% chose to bring their boys home. About 40% elected to leave them overseas to be buried with their comrades. It cost, regardless of where the ultimate disposition was, $564.50, something only a victorious wealthy nation could afford. Every grave was opened by hand, and every dead soldier was dusted with an embalming compound of formaldehyde, aluminum chloride, wood powder, clay, and plaster of Paris. They were then placed in a metal casket with a satin pillow. Labor strikes in the United States caused a shortage of casket steel, and there was also a shortage of licensed embalmers. In warehouses at Cherbourg and Cardiff and elsewhere, the debt accumulated. Finally, the SS Joseph V. Connolly, the first of 21 ghost ships from Europe and the Pacific, sailed from Antwerp with more than 5,000 soldiers in her hold. On October 27, 1947, the Connolly birthed in New York and stevedores winched the caskets from the hold two-by-two in specially designed slings. And the dead began this great diaspora across the Republic, traveling mostly by rail for burial in their hometowns or in national cemeteries. That's how the dead came home. But what of their belongings? What are the things they carried? Even before the dead came home, these things had been coming back. At a large warehouse on Hardesty Avenue in Kansas City, the U.S. Army Effects Bureau had begun as a modest quartermaster operation with about a dozen employees in early 1942. That expanded to more than 1,000 workers, and by August 1945, they were handling 60,000 sets of effects a month, effects of the dead from six continents. Hour after hour, day after day, shipping containers were unloaded from rail box cars at the siding next to the warehouse, and they were hoisted by elevator to the depot's 10th floor. And there they traveled by assembly line conveyor belt down to the seventh floor. And inspectors along the assembly line palled through the goods and they extracted ammunition, pornography, perhaps letters from a girlfriend you didn't want a grieving widow to see. Workers used grinding stones and dentist drills to remove corrosion and blood stains from web gear and other equipment, laundresses scrubbed and scrubbed trying to get the bloodstains out of uniforms. A detailed inventory was then pinned to each repacked container and they were stacked up. And all the while, in an adjacent room, a huge room, banks of typists were banging out letters, up to 70,000 letters a month. And the gist of those letters was this. Dear sir, Dear Madam, we have your dead son's stuff. Where shall we send it? Over the years, the effects bureau had found many things, tapestries, enemy swords, a German machine gun, an Italian accordion, walrus tusks, a shrunken head, a tobacco sack full of diamonds. Among thousands of diaries collected in Kansas City was a small notebook that had belonged to Lieutenant Herschel G. Horton, 29, of Aurora, Illinois. Shot in the right leg and hip during a firefight with the Japanese on New Guinea, Horton had dragged himself into a grass shanty. And over the next several days that it took for him to die, he wrote a letter, a final letter, to his family it began my dear sweet father mother and sister i lay here in this terrible place wondering not why god has forsaken me but why he is making me suffer the first duty of all of us is to remember our current poet laureate natasha trethway ends her poem Pilgrimage, which is about a visit to Vicksburg, with these lines. In my dream, the ghost of history lies down beside me, rolls over, pins me beneath a heavy arm. My ambition as the author of this trilogy is for you, too, to feel that heavy arm, to feel the palpable presence of those who risked everything and in some instances gave everything for us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks so much. So, questions, comments, please um, raise your hand and they'll pass you a microphone. We'll take a lecture and make it into a conversation. <laughs> Rick, on the, uh, on the eve of Operation Overlord, there was a great deal of concern, we know, in the British Isles about security and and stopping all the potential leaks that could uh, ruin operations. Um, based on current news, there's as a, as a great deal of concern now on the part of journalists in uh, the country today about leaks and security. Can you comment at all on, on the difference between 1944, wartime, and today, in the relationship between government entities and the press? Sure. (laughs) I have opinions on that. Well, in 1944 or throughout the war, reporters were um, subject to very severe censorship. They wore uniforms. They were effectively part of the chain of command. If you violated the rules, you could be evicted from the theater if you were overseas. I think, the, with all due respect to the veterans who are here, I think the notion of the greatest generation, and also with all due respect to my friend Tom Brokaw, is nonsense. We can talk about that in a minute if you want, but it was the greatest generation of, of reporters, and I use them. <laughs> They're a terrific bunch. I use them much more than most historians because they are paid, trained observers, often with a very keen eye and uh, a sense of irony and skepticism. Uh, Nevertheless, they labor under these arduous conditions, as reporters today would consider. So, for example, and you mentioned security, and it's not just before Normandy, it's before any major operation during the war. Before the invasion of Sicily, Eisenhower summons I think there were 30 or 40 or perhaps more, reporters who were accredited to, to his headquarters in Algiers. And he said, I'm going to tell you something. This is in late June of 1943. And you've got to keep it to yourself. Don't tell anyone. And he pulls back a curtain. And there's a map of Sicily. And he said, we're going to invade Sicily on July 10th. And the American 7th Army under George Patton is going to come in in the south. And the British 8th Army under Montgomery is going to come in from the southeast. Remember, don't tell anybody. One of the reporters said, don't ever do that to us again. (laughs) Well, they didn't tell anybody. Okay. February 2003, I personally am among 600 journalists who are with uh, American forces mostly um, before the invader gathering in Kuwait. I'm with the 101st Airborne Division and a major general you've heard of named Dave Petraeus. And we essentially are told, here's what we're going to do. We're going to invade Iraq. We're going to do it like this. We're coming like this. Don't tell anybody. We didn't tell anybody. So, and this happens over and over again. Operational security is something that reporters then and now are pretty good at maintaining. Today, we're not subject to censorship. Today, everybody's got cell phones and and satellite phones and all the kinds of instant communications with the uh, home front. Uh, Reporters would refuse to wear uniforms today. I would never wear a uniform. Um, And you're not part of the chain of command, and yet still there is an observance of the rules. Now, you had to sign. You have to sign today when you go to Afghanistan Uh, a set of agreements. I will not disclose stupidly things I shouldn't disclose. And it's almost never violated. And uh, if there are any military folks in the room, I suspect that they would confirm that. You almost never hear complaints from the military today about violation of operational security. Now, okay, having said that, there's no doubt there's a difference, big, big differences between then and now. Among other things, we have been through Vietnam, and it, it was toxic to the relationship between the military and the media. And it's only now that generation, Vietnam generation, washing out of both institutions that we're back to some sense of reasonable trust. Now, it's a kind of trust where my job was not to make Dave Petraeus look good. That was his job. And uh, he knew very well, despite the fact that I'm at his elbow all day, every day for two months, that if he does something, that if he does anything, that I'm going to well report it. The reality is that when you're in a, a reporter in that circumstance, you make decisions about you've got you to give the guy a break on occasion. You, got, you have to think through what it is you're going to report. Um, And I certainly did that, and every reporter who's out in the field does that. Um, So I think, surprisingly, the differences between then and now, even though superficially they're they're immense, on a fundamental basis, there are a lot of similarities. Um, And the reason I think they're the greatest generation of reporters is they are just fantastically talented. Um, You know a lot of them, Ernie Pyle and um, uh, that cohort, but some of them you don't know. There's an Australian journalist named Osmer White, and I gather, I bet nobody in this room has heard of him. He's, he's, he's with Patton's Third Army. He's a wonderful talent. Eric Severide, who writes a lot from Italy, and later you remember him on 60 Minutes and with CBS. He is a brilliant reporter, and there's a whole cadre of them. And I, I use them because they're just extraordinarily uh, talented. Thanks for the good question, sir. Charlie, hang on a minute. Wait till she brings the... I'll I'll shout at that. No, she has to. They can't hear you in the back. By
0: 1944, what would you say was the greatest strength and the greatest weakness is of the American Army?
1: Well, I think, um, Charlie, the greatest strength is uh, numbers and uh, just heft. And by heft, I mean we have more of everything than the enemy has uh, by 1944. We're making 90,000 airplanes a month. We're making millions of trucks and other vehicles, not only for us, but for our allies, the Brits and the Soviets in particular. Um, So we have a predominance, a preponderance, really, of um, materiel, and that is going to wear big time. Now, I would include in that our, our air superiority, because we've got way more planes than they've got. Uh, both strategic planes, heavy bombers that are hammering German cities, as are the Brits, um, and tactical airplanes that are supporting the armies as they're moving across the battlefield. Um, the greatest weakness, I think, um, it's probably leadership, and that's an odd thing to say, but it's still a pretty green army in some ways, despite having the experiences of North Africa and, and Italy. The army is growing so rapidly, it's metastasizing. It goes from 190,000 in 1938, when we are the 17th ranked military power in the world, right behind that perennial military powerhouse, Romania. (laughs) To an army of 8 million, 8.3 million in 1944. Um, And when you grow that big, any of you who are in business can appreciate this, uh, the growing pains are unbelievable. And trying to find men and their almost all men, who can manage that, who can lead that, and trying to find men who can lead other men in the dark of night, which is what combat is fundamentally about. That's really hard. And so we find emerging from this great churning, and what's happening in the Mediterranean in the first couple of years is a great sifting out. It's a sifting out of the competent from the incompetent, of the physically fit from those who are not fit, which is very, very important in combat, of the lucky from the unlucky. What's the trait that Napoleon most valued in his generals? Luck. It's incredibly important in war. And so this sifting out is going on in Africa and Mediterranean, and the same thing is happening in the Pacific. And by the time you get to Normandy in June of 1944, The sifting is still happening because the army is still growing. And so you find a number of commanders at all levels, from platoon leader up to army group commander, and it's not entirely clear that they're up to the task. Uh, There are many, many sacked and sent home. Um, Sometimes it's unfair, sometimes it's precipitous, but often it's deserved. And when you've got commanders who are not up to the task, whether it's a platoon, company, battalion, regiment, division, corps, army or army group, young soldiers die who don't necessarily need to have died had there been better leadership. So I think that is the weakness in an odd way, despite the fact that we had you know, needless to say, some extraordinarily capable combat leaders. Thanks, Charlie. That sort of leads into uh, my question. General Omar Bradley was in all three of your books, major player. Uh, he sometimes gets mixed reviews. What would be your general assessment of General Bradley? I'd give him mixed reviews. <laughs> Well, Omar Bradley, West Point class in 1915, classmate of Dwight Eisenhower. Um, He's a Missouri sod buster's son. Um, And uh, he, like Eisenhower, has never been in combat before he shows up in North Africa. He missed World War I. was not sent overseas. Um, My feeling is that in North Africa, where he takes over the main American tactical unit, the second corps, and commands that corps for a while after the first commander, Lloyd Friedendahl, fails miserably. And the guy who replaces him for 45 days, George Patton, does pretty well. Does pretty well, not great. And then Bradley comes in to command the Corps for the end of the campaign, and he's a he's a pretty capable corps commander. He's feeling his way again. He's you know, he hadn't done this before. And he commands that same corps in Sicily in July of 1943, and he's pretty good at it. He's better at it. Um, All of a sudden, after the Sicily campaign, he is sent back to England, where he is to command First Army. It's the main American force going into France. And shortly after that, the end of August 1944, once the breakout begins in Normandy, he's commanding an army group. An army group is two or more armies. He's commanding the largest... American army tactical unit ever deployed. He's not completely up to it. There's a certain element of the Peter Principle, the notion that you're promoted beyond your natural level of incompetence. Um, He's not inept. Um, He's Eisenhower's closest friend and ally out there, and that's an important role that he plays. Eisenhower needs, every, every leader needs somebody to talk to as reporters like me have learned um, to our delight over the years. Um, And Bradley provides that sounding board for Eisenhower. But you see him, like Eisenhower, he's not a natural field marshal. He's not a great captain. He does not see the the battlefield spatially and temporally like a great captain does, like Napoleon. He does not have the capacity to impose his will on the enemy as a great captain must and does. And so my feeling is that his performance is, you know, uh, we win, okay? So let's give him credit for that. Um, And he's a big part of that. But at places like the Bulge, which he's in denial about the German attack in the Ardennes on December 16, 1944, for a while, he just refuses to believe that it's more than kind of a spoiling action by the Germans. Eisenhower actually sees it much more clearly... Um, and they're at the Falaise pocket where we've got the Germans after they've been routed at St. Lowe uh, and we're breaking through. He and Montgomery and Eisenhower together aren't particularly good and a lot of Germans get away. We, We kill and capture a lot of them but a lot of them get away including most of the commanders and that's why they're able to form a coherent defense when they get back on the German border and that's why they're able to Put together astonishingly this remarkable counteroffensive through the Ardennes that we know as the Battle of the Bulge. So, you know, one last word about Bradley. He, of course, becomes a five star general, uh, and he outlives almost everybody. And um, there's great merit in that if you're trying to shape history. <laughs> um, he is the technical advisor on the movie Patton in 1970. He's played by Carl Malden in the movie, you may remember. Um, He writes not one, but two memoirs. The second one's published right after his death. And so he's got his oars in, and he's kind of steering the little boat the way he wants to steer it. He has a second wife who's very protective of his reputation. She's really aggressive. Miss Kitty, they call her. Uh, And uh, uh, so that's one of the reasons why Bradley's reputation, I think, was somewhat inflated uh, in the post-war decades. Um, so that's, what, that's my take on him, Sir. As a follow-up to those last two questions, how would you compare the generals of today and admirals of today to those of World War II? <laughs> I'm sorry, we're out of time. <laughs> <laughs> Well look, I think they're pretty good today, to be honest with you. My friend Tom Ricks wrote a book recently um, in which he essentially excoriates the current generation and he holds up um, as models of military competence and strategic thought and so on that World War II generation, particularly George Marshall. And with all due respect to Tom, I just don't buy it. I think the history is shaky. Um, And my feeling is, if you look at generals today, there are 1,300 army generals, more or less, in World War II. Today there are two, I can't remember the number, it's less than 300, in the U.S. Army alone. Uh, And um, they tend, by and large, to be um, better educated today, more physically fit, They're not all smoking four packs of cigarettes a day like Eisenhower is. Uh, They're they're better prepared professionally. They've gone through the Army's schools, which I think are generally pretty good. Um, And at this point, they have a tremendous amount of combat experience. I mean, before 2001, it was not unusual to go to an Army post and most of the Officers there, most of the senior commanders, would be clean sleeve They would not have what's known as a combat patch on their right sleeve. Dave Petraeus wears that screaming eagle, the 101st Airborne. Those of you guys who've been in combat know what I'm talking about. It, it, it counts a lot. Uh, and uh, since 2001, it's kind of unusual to find anyone who's been in the military for a while who doesn't have a combat patch. So they've been through a lot. Now, they haven't been fighting the Battle of the Bulge. It's not World War II. And yet, um, they've got a lot of experience at it. Uh, do they have strategic breadth and so on? Uh, and this was t- Tom Ricks's main complaint that they, that they don't and that there's a, a system, a kind of cover your butt system that has sprung up. There's something to that, yeah. It's, I mean, it's an organization that has flaws, the Army and the other services too. Um, and strategic breadth, well, you know, the system has changed. If you're Dwight Eisenhower in 1944, you're staying in touch with your boss, George Marshall, and he is letting you know what his bosses, the the other combined chiefs of staff, and particularly uh, Roosevelt, the commander-in-chief, and and even Churchill are thinking, but um, you don't have instant communication. You don't have video conferences in your face 24-7. Um, you don't have your BlackBerry constantly buzzing with guys in Washington wanting to know about this or that or this or that. Um, so the field commanders, the relationship with the, the, the home office really is is quite different today. Um, and that needs to t- be taken into account as you think about them. But in, on the whole, I've, you know, the generals now, uh, I'll give you one example just as a postscript. Uh, The commander at Fort uh, Benning, Georgia, H.R. McMaster. I've known him since he was Captain McMaster. He's now Major General McMaster. Lieutenant General McMaster. He got a third star. At any rate, um, he's a West Pointer. I met him uh, at w- what the Army called the Battle of 7-3 Easting in the Gulf War. And it was a little scrap between uh, basically company sized HR's uh, armored cavalry um, s- squadron um, and uh, Iraqis. And the Army inflated it like it was the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, HR, I'd stack him up against any general in World War II. He's got a Ph.D. in history. He is a great combat leader. He's a just extraordinary guy in all respects. Uh, he's very dynamic. He's very charismatic. Um, maybe he'll be chief of staff someday. Who knows? There are mysteries in those selections. But that's an example of a guy who really can go toe-to-toe with anybody. Thanks for the question, sir. you have mentioned uh, general marshall on occasion in your comments and um, churchill referred to marshall as the architect of victory uh, could you give us your thoughts about general marshall well the folks in this room know who general marshall is but if you go out on the streets of richmond and you ask most people who was george c marshall well they might know because he had a virginia connection even though he's from pennsylvania Um, but most Americans don't really know who he is. They've only got the fuzziest idea, and he's extraordinary. He is the noblest Roman of them all, as Churchill also said. Um, He's kind of a forbidding figure. He's an Old Testament character, and uh, he did not invite familiarity. Um, He and Eisenhower, Eisenhower, Marshall was born in 1880, Eisenhower was born in 1890, so there's a decade difference between them. And uh, they never addressed each other other than as general, dear general, dear general. There was no uh, Ike and George among them. (laughs) Um, And Marshall's task is in large measure to help steer the president and to help the president, who after all has never heard a shot fired in anger, to help the president to manage this extraordinary global conflagration and to help him to understand everything from the nuances of what's happening at the Hurtgen Forest, for example, to why we need another 90,000 airplanes. Um, He's he's quite good at it, I think. He's he's got a, um, and he shares this with Eisenhower to a large extent, there's a probity about him. No one ever doubts his word. No one ever doubts that. No one ever suspects that he's got ulterior motives. If he tells you something, he basically means what he's telling you. Uh, if you cross him, he's going to come down on you hard, but he's not vindictive. He's got a, um, he's an adult, uh, and they aren't all adults. and Believe it or not, in World War II, a lot of those generals are sophomoric. Um, and um, uh, this is only his army career in World War II. Needless to say, is his role in the Red Cross, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense. He's he's just a towering figure. Um, he's a little inaccessible, and I think that's one of the reasons why there there've been obviously biographies written about him and some good ones, but he doesn't capture our imagination. He believes he's going to be the supreme commander for the final push from Normandy on. And as some of you certainly know, um, Roosevelt tells him that he has decided instead to keep Eisenhower as theater commander, to shift him from the Mediterranean to Britain to prepare for Normandy. And it's largely because Roosevelt just can't stand the thought of not having marshal with him in Washington. He's, he is the indispensable man for Roosevelt. Um, there's reason to believe he's really heartbroken by this. Uh, who ever remembers a chief of staff, you remember the guy who was the supreme commander or the swashbuckler out there on the battlefield, but he never says a word to anyone as far as I know and there's no documentation that he ever complained, that he ever said a crossword to his wife. He had a, uh, his his second wife had a son who, who, who Marshall treated as his own son who was killed in Italy. We know that this broke his heart, very similar to General Patch, with the exception being that for Marshall, he keeps this really Old Testament reserve he never really shows how wounded, how damaged he is by this personal loss. So he's a remarkable guy. His house, and not one last anecdote about him, he he uh, had quarters at Fort Myer um, in Arlington near the Pentagon, but he also bought a house in Leesburg, Virginia. Some of you perhaps have visited It's called Dodona Manor, among other things, and he, this makes me very dear to makes him very dear to my heart. He, he was a passionate gardener. He liked nothing more than to be out, you know, with his mulch pit. And um, I went to visit Dodona Manor once in Leesburg and um, one of the docents there told me, I've not confirmed it, uh, but I'm reasonably certain it sounds like Marshall, that he would leave Leesburg to drive to the Pentagon every day, driving his own car, and when he was out of sight of Leesburg, driving toward the Pentagon, he would park the car on the side of the road and the army sedan with the driver would pick him up and take him to the Pentagon and he would reverse this coming back where the army sedan would drop him off, he'd drive his car back to Dodono Manor in Leesburg and this was because he didn't want people in Leesburg to think he had heirs. <laughs> now in that regard, he might be a little different from some generals today. At any rate, he's a fantastic character. Thanks. Thanks for asking that last question. Thank you very much. Thank you.